Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the History of England, episode 251 The End of Days, the End of Everybody. Forgive me, folks. Two quick notices, if I may. First of all, check out my friend Travis and his podcasts at podcastnick.com. The History of Alchemy, The History of Germany, and The Bohemican Podcast, which is all about Czech history. Go and have a look at podcastnick.com. I'm sure you'll enjoy them. Secondly, come and have a listen to Royfield and me at The Things That Made England. This is a new podcast I told you about a few weeks ago, and this week... We're talking about the flag of St George, past and present, whether it can safely be held as a symbol of England, or does it remain too divisive a symbol. The nature of patriotism and nationalism and that sort of thing. So come along and listen, and if you like, you can comment and vote. There's always a good chat going on at the Things That Made England Facebook site, or you can find out more at the History of England website. So, last time then, I irritatingly left things on a cliff edge. Really sorry about that. And we had 25-year-old Anne Askew and her estranged husband, Thomas Kime, standing before a group of the King's Council. That group included Thomas Rottersley, Stephen Gardner, William Paget, John Dudley and William Parr. Now, of this group, two of them, John Dudley, William Parr, could be accounted sympathetic to the evangelical cause. But Parr was a political cipher. Only Dudley would have any clout and whether he would want to exercise it on behalf of a potentially heretical woman is entirely moot. As Anne stood in front of her accusers, we can understand something of her attitude from a poem that she wrote later. Here's a bit of it to give you a flavour. Like as the armed knight appointed to the field, with this world will I fight, and faith shall be my shield. Faith is that weapon strong which will not fail at need. My foes, therefore, among therewith will I proceed. As it had in strength and force of Christ's way, it will prevail at length, though all the devils say nay. So, reasonably uncompromising then. She started by making it quite clear to the council that as far as she was concerned, the man standing next to her, Thomas Kime, was no longer anything to do with her. She was no longer his wife in her view. Kime was duly allowed to go, and I guess he was probably pretty relieved, because so began Anne's examination, two full days of questions and interrogation, which Anne answered, parried, and on occasion flatly refused to answer. She threw her knowledge of the scriptures at the council's collective head. Gardner tried to talk around. He was her friend. He only wanted to save her soul. Anne firmly and contemptuously pushed this away. These were the kind of weasel words of Judas, she spat, and she refused his friendship. 
The council got precisely nowhere, neither in persuading her that she was in error or in eliciting any names at all. Time and time again, they pressed her about her connection to the Countess of Hertford, to Lady Denny, to the Duchess of Suffolk, all these women of Catherine Parr's household. She was the ultimate target. Eventually, the council gave up, threw their hands up, baby hands up, and Anne would not give them their love, which I think is a rather feeble reference by me, to some genuinely rubbish pop song of my youth. This time, Anne could not be allowed to go free with vague and dodgy assurances. They concluded that this time, she was obstinate and heady in reasoning of matters of religion, wherein she showed herself to be of naughty opinion. And the recorder of the session concluded wearily that, seeing no persuasion of good reason could take place, she was sent to Newgate to remain there to answer to the law. In Newgate Prison, Anne started writing of her experience and composing her ballad that we heard part of, which would later be picked up by Bale and Fox. But her ordeal had only just started, of course, and things began to move quickly to their conclusion. Nine days later, Anne was standing at the Guildhall and was there arraigned for heresy. She had a choice now. She'd done her bit. Surely she'd done her bit. She could now back down and abjure. And indeed, this is exactly what ex-Bishop Nicholas Shaxton did, at the very same trial, in fact. Shaxton was one of Anne Boleyn's bishops, if you remember, and he would now become a staunch traditionalist. But Anne was made of sterner stuff. She flatly rejected the existence of any priestly miracle in the Eucharist. As for that, ye call your God, it is a piece of bread. For a more proof thereof, let it but lie in the box three months, and it will be mouldy. It is a theme of this particular round of heretic hunting as it happens. Almost all of the evangelicals were now denying the sacrament of the Mass, which, of course, much further than Henry would ever go. Cranmer's absence at the trial has been noted, and it could well be that in his conscience, Cranmer himself had by now reached the same conclusion about the Mass as those evangelicals, and could not therefore allow himself to be involved in condemning folks for views he held himself. And so Anne had made her choice. Her choice was death, and death by a particularly grisly road. She would not save herself by implicating anyone else. She would not retract any of her beliefs. She was duly condemned by the court. She was sent back to prison to await the date of her execution, of course, by burning. But Gardner, Rottersley, Rich, these men were not finished with Anne, not by a long chalk. Their desperation had only grown, and also their determination to break Anne with it, to get the information they needed to bring down the Queen and secure England's future for traditional religion. Anne was taken secretly to the Tower of London, and Gardiner ordered Kingston, the constable of the Tower, to have Anne racked. Extraordinary, two members of the Privy Council took part in this by hand. Rottersley and Rich met Anne there. And again, they pressed her for her connections at court, and in the presence of Anthony Kingston, they threatened her with the rack. Now, this was quite illegal. Torture was not allowed for anyone under the legal process without the express permission of the king, which they did not have. Noblemen were protected, and it was unthinkable to torture a woman. No woman had been tortured in the Tower, or not as far as we know. But still, even with this, Anne would not yield. Anne's own account of what happened here is simple and direct, without the complexity of her accounts of her two examinations. 
and quite possibly this is because Anne was a religious zealot. Her interest in writing about her experience was about important things, like humanity's relationship with God, about the truth of the Bible, not about tawdry baubles such as her transitory suffering while she was in this kingdom, which would be so ephemeral compared to the life everlasting she could look forward to. It was John Bale and John Fox who later added details from eyewitnesses or from documents, or in Bale's case, possibly from his imagination. Essentially, when Anne continued to deny Rottersley and Rich what they wanted, they ordered Kingston to put her to the rack. She was stripped to her shift, and she climbed onto the rack and was tied hands and feet, and the wheel began to tighten the ropes. Kingston was clearly horrified, and once again Anne refused to talk. Rottersley and Rich demanded that she be racked again, and this time harder. This was too much for Kingston. He refused to be involved any further, and according to some accounts, rushed off to try and get access to the King. And so, the Lord Chancellor of England, Thomas Rottersley, and the Chancellor of the Court of Augmentations, Richard Rich, both members of the King's Council, put aside their robes, put aside their robes, and put their own hands to the wheel of torture, and they racked her. In Anne's own words. Then they did put me to the rack, because I had confessed no ladies or gentlemen to be of my opinion. The Lord Chancellor and Master Rich took pains to rack me with their own hands till I was nearly dead. I fainted, and then they recovered me again. Still Anne would not tell them what they wanted to know. She would admit that some men had come to give her money in prison to help her, and that they said they'd come from Lady Denny and Countess Hartford, but that was all. It was not enough for the Conservatives to build a case against the Queen. Rottersley and Rich despaired, but still could not accept defeat. Here is Anne again. After that, I sat two long hours arguing with the Lord Chancellor upon the bare floor. With many flattering words, he tried to persuade me to leave my opinions. I said I would rather die than break my faith. Rottersley and Rich were beaten. Anne was taken quietly and secretly to a private house to recover from her torture, but the violence visited on her body was too hideous. Her joints were dislocated. She could not walk. Rich and Rottersley had to face the music of the council, horrified at what they had done. But the kind of music we're talking about here is a good old traditional establishment cover-up. Not even in that, though, could they succeed, and news got out. A London merchant called Ottiwell Johnson wrote to his brother that Askew remained in steadfast mind, and yet she hath been racked since her condemnation. In agony in the secret house, Anne was once more given a chance to recant, once more she refused, and so she was returned to Newgate, there to write her story. The date for her execution was set as the 12th of July, 1546. She would not die alone. Three others, John Lassell, John Hadlam, John Hemley were also to be burned. There was a huge crowd, and both Rottersley and Norfolk were there to see that all was done as it should be. All three men were tied to stakes with faggots around them as normal, but Anne's case was different. She was too broken to walk. Pushing through the crowd and the noise came the sergeants, bringing between them a chair on which Anne was carried. She couldn't stand at the stake to be burned, and so a small chair was set at the bottom of the stake, and she was tied by ankles, wrist, chest and neck to the stake where she sat. Then through the crowd came her torturer, Thomas Rottersley, and he cried out that they could still all recant and be pardoned. Anne replied for all of them when she replied that 
She came not hither to deny my lord and master, and rottersly withdrew and with deep irony handed over to Nicholas Shaxton. It was Nicholas Shaxton who preached, and the evangelicals would never forgive him for what they saw as his treachery and betrayal. They would never forgive him, equally, nor would they burn him in the next reign, and Shaxton would survive to Mary's reign to lead the examination of another Protestant and preside over another burning until he died in his bed in 1556. As he preached, Anne nodded appreciatively, unless he strayed from the scriptures, of course, when she would shake her head in violent disagreement. There are alternative views on how merciful was Anne's death. Some accounts say that a small barrel of gunpowder was used to speed things up, and a barrel of gunpowder will do that for you. It does tend to speed things up. Others wrote that the fire was made to go particularly slow in punishment for her intransigence, and that it took an hour to kill her. Whichever it was, all agreed that Anne died with great courage. Gardner, Rottersley, Rich, had not given up. This was simply a temporary setback. They were, after all, at the height of their rash of burnings, and the orthodox message was being vigorously enforced, or at least as orthodox as you got after Henry's Reformation. And there was the hope now that the nightmare of the last dozen years could be turned back, everything could be forgotten, because on the 30th of July 1546, a papal envoy once more set foot on English soil. And on the 3rd of August 1546, a papal envoy met with the king. There seemed to be hope for the Conservatives. Henry didn't kick him in the arse. Henry seemed open to the idea of a general council of the church, which involved the Pope. And at some point, Gardner and Rottersley sprang their trap on Queen Catherine. It has to be said, we do not know exactly when said trap was sprung. It could have been as far back as October 1545, it could have been as late as November 1546. But let's talk about it now and assume that this plot was the reaction to the failure of the Anne Askew approach rather than Anne's torture and death being the fallout from the failure of the attack on Catherine. But you pays your money and all that. Henry's irritation at Catherine's enthusiasm and proselytising had not abated. His irritation seems to have communicated itself to the world in some way because in February 1546, Chapuis wrote to Charles V again, Sire, I am confused and apprehensive to have to inform your majesty that there are rumours here of a new queen, although I do not know why or how true they may be. Gardiner now went to work on Henry, sympathising with him that, oh, Catherine was always trying to persuade him of some religious point, that she tried to influence foreign policy towards the German princess, which was hardly a woman's role. And what were women doing talking religion anyway? Dirt was dished, mud was thrown wallwards. And to Gardner's delight, when he proposed to do something about it, Henry was open to the idea. OK, stockfish, he said. He had a high voice, apparently, did Henry. It's clear there's something fishy going on here, and one of her ladies has a dog called Gardner, did you know? So, what's the plan? Here it is, King, said Wiley Winchester. We'll arrest your old lady and her heretical crew in front of everybody, and then we'll raid her household, and don't you worry, we'll find a load of heretical books, and all will be well. All I ask is that you lead Catherine Willoughby and her dog to me. She's mine. I am busking, of course. All we know, or think we know, is that Henry agreed that his wife should indeed be arrested in front of the court and everyone. What a snake! 
In the words of Rowena Ravenclaw, irritation beyond measure is man's greatest treasure, and Henry's irritation with Catherine was about to bring her down in the most humiliating way. Thomas Rottersley was beside himself when he heard. There was all kind of fist-pumping, egg-laying and having of kittens going on. I'll have her arrested tomorrow, as agreed with the king, in front of the king and the court. Trust me, stockfish, said Rottersley. Great, said Gardiner, but stop calling me stockfish. Later that day, Henry had a consultation with his doctor. Now, normally, this would have been Dr Butts. Are we allowed to giggle at this, or is it just too puerile? Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Dr. Butts had been his physician for many years and had been part of the evangelical conspiracy of the Privy Chamber. That is to say, he'd had evangelical views and used his privileged access to the king to gain advancement for others of the same persuasion, such as Hugh Latimer and a man who will be very important, John Cheek. But Butts had died the previous year, so two physicians, a Dr. Wendy and a Dr. Owen, attended the king that day. Both men had quite close connections with the Queen, as it happens, so it's interesting that they attended. So, when Henry vented his spleen as he was doctored about Catherine and told them that he was going to get rid of her, they would not have been happy to hear the news, obviously. Now, Rottersley had meanwhile prepared a bill of articles as the instrument by which Catherine was to be arrested. It was probably Dr Wendy who therefore contrived to have this bill of articles dropped near Catherine's room or a copy of it. Or it was maybe simply carelessness by Rottersley, but that really would have been careless with a capital C. Either way, this bill of accusations against Catherine was brought to her and she panicked. And look, it was a good time to panic. I panic if I run out of tea bags, let alone being threatened with heresy. The message reached the king that the queen was in a terrible state. She collapsed with shock or something. And so the king sent Dr Wendy to examine and give her medical aid. The next day then all was set. It was Rottersley who was going to deliver the coup de grace against the Queen. He was to bring a detachment of the guard to the gardens where the King would be walking with Catherine and her ladies. There he was dramatically to read out the charges and arrest Catherine and ladies Denny, Lane and Holby. And maybe the result would be divorced, beheaded, died, divorced, beheaded, burned. At the allotted time, Rottersley turned up, no doubt, with heart beating with excitement and anticipated pleasure. As he approached, the king signalled him to come to one side, and he sank to his knees in front of his anointed king. What followed shocked Rottersley and made his heart thump for very different reasons. Knave! Arrant knave! Beast! And fool! Henry thundered. In horror, Rottersley asked leave to go and fled with his guards. What had gone wrong? The story is probably one of Catherine's skills and the evangelical support structure in the Privy Chamber. Dr Wendy may well have been the one to warn Catherine and to suggest a solution, the only solution with any legs as far as Henry was concerned, immediate, complete and abject submission. But it had to be done right. And so Catherine gathered her ladies and went to see her husband, pretending to be all innocence. Not a word of religion passed her lips. Henry was intrigued. He turned the discussion to religion 
expecting maybe to be in receipt of an earful. None was forthcoming. His ears remained empty, until Catherine demurely explained that she had no opinion since. Must I and will I refer my judgment in this and in all other cases to your majesty's wisdom as my only anchor, supreme head and governor here in earth, next under God? History does not record if Catherine was forced to make recourse to a sick bag at this stage. Henry wasn't ready to give up so easily, though. Not so, by Mary. You are become Dr. Kate to instructors, as we take it, and not to be instructed or directed by us. At this point, I would probably have started weeping and kissing Henry's feet in desperation. Catherine was cool enough to come up with an answer. Oh, that? Without talking about religion? No, 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 no. That was just me distracting you from the pain in your leg, sweetheart. It was enough. Is that even so, sweetheart? And tended your arguments to no worse end? Then perfect friend we are now again, as ever, at any time heretofore. The chequered flag was waving, the champagne was streaming all over the place. Catherine had survived for the moment at least. I might return you to a bit of historiography I mentioned a while ago about the interpretation of these last years. Is Henry the victim of faction, blown hither and thither by the influence visited on him by his court? Or was he the puppet master, the man who had watched the winds of faction in his court now for well over 30 years, with nothing more to learn about the undignified scrambling below him, with nothing to do except manipulate the ambitious, amoral multitude below him, play the game and show everyone who was really in command. This little incident is open to both interpretations. In fact, in this one, I think I favour Henry the game player. Astonishing as it may seem, I find it difficult to believe that Henry had the energy or desire to rid himself of Catherine. But I can see him being enough of a snake to put his wife through such torture to make a point to the plotters. I suspect he egged on Rottersley. I suspect he put Dr. Wendy up to the dropping of the articles. I suspect he sent Dr. Wendy along to Catherine afterwards to make sure Catherine had the required coaching. I suspect the lesson was as much for Rottersley and Gardiner as it was for Catherine. Nonetheless, in August 1546, despite the failure of these two plots now against Cranmer and Catherine, the Conservatives would still have been feeling pretty confident and on top of things, given the progress of the heresy trials. Norfolk and his son Surrey openly speculated about what a Regency castle would be like with them in command after Henry pegged it, and looked forward to the re-establishment of good old patrician government. All they needed was just to keep it going a little longer, because it was becoming clear that this was now the end game. Henry was increasingly immobile and reclusive, being wheeled around and using his trams, constantly in pain. He surely couldn't last any longer. Edward was but nine years old, and there would have to be a regency at some point, however long he lasted. For much of what followed, some historians have again seen the work of faction, and the puppet master to be not Henry, but another of the players that we've talked about, William Paget, the King's secretary. David Starkey in particular sees in his hands a master manipulator who took a decision in 1546 about to which side of his bread he should apply the butter. We noted that William Paget was the ultimate politician. No great passion or causes, just the desire to win, hold power and deliver efficient government. And in 1546, claimed Starkey, Paget decided that Hartford would be more manageable a boss than Norfolk, and certainly Paget did not have the kind of background that would impress Norfolk. 
but the first straws in the wind were certainly not of Paget's making. Firstly, Henry decided that there was no way he was going to give up the thing he'd fought so hard for over the last dozen years. Whatever the doctrinal issues, he would not be giving up his position as supreme head of the church, and so the papal envoy Garone was sent packing. And you have to think that Henry had always, from the start, just been messing with the imperial and papal heads, until the peace with France was landed. Henry had learned to play the diplomatic game with some brio over the last 30 years. And by August the 12th, peace with France was duly landed. The Admiral of France visited in a blaze of glory to confirm it. So, as the Admiral came in, the Pope went out. Seems straightforward enough. The last time the Admiral had visited, of course, he had been at the head of an invasion fleet. So, this was a happier occasion. There was an interesting and unverified incident during the visit, though. Henry was very obviously favouring Cranmer during it. And according to Fox, Henry told Cranmer that he'd make more doctrinal changes in the evangelical direction, and Cranmer believed that Henry would be changing the Mass into a communion. Now that is thermonuclear. That would be the end of any pretense of orthodoxy, Communion specifically rejected transubstantiation and even Luther's consubstantiation and saw the miracle as residing in the heart of the communicant. We have only Fox's word for this, though, so we've never been very sure. It was at this point that Gardiner chose to make one of his famous political gaffes. In November 1546, Henry demanded that Gardiner swap some of his Winchester manners for some royal ones. This was a standard, if irritating practice, because you won't be surprised to learn that somehow the crown always came off better in the exchange. And Gardiner said, no. He said, what? You have to say that there is one word for Gardiner in this, and one word only. The word is dipstick. Henry was incandescent with rage. Starkey would have us believe that Paget in some way manoeuvred Gardner into this, which is a bit difficult to see. But what is believable is that Paget then mobilised Anthony Denny, the groom of the stool in the privy chamber, to keep Gardner from getting back in to see the king and make everything okay again. Keeping Gardner away from the king, just like Anne Boleyn had kept Wolsey away from Henry in 1529, was critical. Stockfish he might have been, silver tongue Gardner was also. Even on this point, I find Starkey a bit unconvincing, since later, that very same Denny will beg the king to retain Gardner on his council as Henry lay dying, of which more later. Anyway, Gardner immediately realised the level of his dipstickery, grovelled, gave in completely and begged for an interview. A message from the Privy Chamber came back that Henry saw no reason why you should molest us any further. This was probably the most consequential gaffe Gardner made, and he made some. Gardner was out, he was off. He was off the Regency Council, and Norfolk and the Conservatives would lose one of the most talented and influential of their Privy Council members. There was more dramatic to come. I mean, really dramatic. This will make your hair stand on end. As Henry descended into greater and greater illness, a man called Richard Southwell came forward to the Council. Southwell was a minor but not inconsequential figure at Henry's court. There's a portrait of him by Holbein, and honestly, if you shook hands with a chap, you'd want to count your fingers afterwards. Southwell told the council on the 2nd of December that he knew certain things of the Earl of Surrey that touched his fidelity to the king. Oh, hang on. Surrey 
as you may remember, was the arrogant, wild, poetic son of Norfolk. Surrey was an aristocratic supremacist, if ever there was one. He might differ with his dad over religion, but he was absolutely clear the regency should be a Howard-led body. No one else would measure up. Surrey's dad had stayed by the king throughout the reign. He was a survivor of enormous skill, and his weakness was to be his son. If you want to know more of both Norfolk and his turbulent private life, and Surrey and his turbulent private life, there is a Shedcast available. All you have to do is reach for the wallet and become a member, and you will also access a library of over 30 hours of podcasts. Just saying. By the 12th of December 1546, Surrey was in the Tower. Norfolk was also arrested. Poor old Norfolk, who had essentially dropped any possible claim to having any principles other than loyalty to his king, suffered the same horrors as he had inflicted on Cromwell, stripped of his treasurer's staff of office, taken away to the Tower. Surrey's crime seems very minor to the modern ear. The thing they got him on was quartering his arms with the royal arms, those of Edward the Confessor. That was the technicality. The real reason was his obvious planning for power after Henry's death and how that would then project the traditionist Norfolk into power. Surrey had even suggested to his sister that she become the king's mistress so that she could rule through him, though really this sounds like a gag, which his sister dealt with in the way that sisters do. Surrey went to trial on the 13th of January 1547. He made a dramatic and characteristically aggressive defence, was convicted of course, and was then pulled, shouting from the court with words that totally sum up his attitude. Of what have you found me guilty? Surely you find no law that justifies you. But I know the king wants to get rid of the noble blood around him and apply number low people. He was executed on the 19th of January. His father took a different approach, the tried and tested Norfolk approach. He grovelled. He pleaded guilty to treason, but it's not quite clear what treason he was actually responsible for, and wrote a grovelling, if slightly confused, letter. For once, you know, I find myself in some sympathy for the man. I, your most humble subject, prostrate at your feet, do most humbly beseech your highness to be my good and gracious lord. I am sore. Some great enemy of mine has informed your majesty of some untrue matter against me, sir God knows, in all my life. I have never thought one untrue thought against you or your succession. It didn't help that in the investigation, both his estranged wife and the mistress that he'd estranged her for both agreed to testify and didn't do him any favours. The letters he sent to Henry did him no good either. On the 27th of January 1547, royal assent was given to a bill of attainder against Norfolk, turning it, of course, into an act, and now he was just waiting for the axe to fall which he was supposed to do the following day, the 28th of January. It seems incredible. Charles V's gob was equally smacked. Those two ungracious, ingrate, inhuman non-homines, the Duke of Norfolk and his son, the elder of whom I do confess I did love, for I ever supposed him to be a true servant to his master. Before God, I am amazed. You and me both, Mr Habsburg, you and me both. By the end of 1546, Henry was a very poorly pig indeed. He didn't even have the energy for Christmas, really. He sent Catherine away, and actually, politically, Catherine's bolt was now shot, and she would play no part in the regency that followed. In December and January, access to the king was almost non-existent. 
Rumours abounded that Henry was about to die or that he was even already dead. On the 8th of January 1547, the French ambassador noted that the king has been so ill for the past 15 days that he was reported dead. But then suddenly he made a recovery and he reappeared. On the 17th of January 1547, he met both French and imperial ambassadors. But then, ten days later, he was once more very ill indeed, and the 17th will stand as his last public appearance. But we have one more matter to discuss before we come to his last words, which I have to tell you are nowhere near as good as the most famous of royal last lines. I speak, of course, of George V and his last gasp words, bugabogna, immortal, if immoderate words. So, the theory that William Paget manipulated Hartford and the evangelicals into a position of power is helped by the absolute control of access to the king in the last two months of his life. In this crucial period, is further evidence, if any is needed, that access to an autocrat is an immense power. Paget, Henry's secretary, and Denny, his closest privy chamber member, were in a position of enormous power and influence. The claim has then been made that Paget doctored Henry's last will to make sure that his chosen faction would come out on top. Henry's will does have some unsatisfactory aspects to it, to put it mildly. The actual production of the will was a bit of a muddle. The work was started on the 26th of December when Henry called for the will. The wrong one was brought, actually. Incidentally, I saw one book accusing Henry of incompetence for leaving the making of his will so late. Connected to that, another theory, quite well trodden, was that Henry left it late because he was wielding the will like a sword of Damocles to make everybody do what he wants. You know, a bit like the aged lord of the manor threatening to cut his heirs out of the will if they don't behave, threatening individuals that they would not be part of the Regency Council in this idiom. It seems a bit unnecessary to me. Why hold off signing a will? It's just as easy to screech, I'll change my will again if you don't, see if you don't, you nasty little tick. And the other point is that a will was already in existence, just needed updating is all. Anyway, now that I have defended the big man, the wrong will was brought, which is a little careless, but Henry was on the money enough to recognise that it was indeed the wrong one, and so the man knew what he was doing. The right will was discussed on the 26th of December with the council, and then apparently reviewed on the 30th. But the will was never signed, which does not mean it was invalid, as has been claimed. It was signed by the dry stamp a by then fully accepted process by which a hard stamp created an impression in the page and was then inked in later. But more intriguingly, the stamp was apparently not applied until the 27th of January, or so the records of the clerk says. So that leaves us open to the conspiracy theorist. And the object of our conspiracists is our William Paget. The idea is that a will may have been agreed on the 30th of December in 1546, but it wasn't the one that was stamped on the 27th of January, 1547. What is the evidence for all of this? Well, we need means, motive and opportunity, don't we, Mr Holmes? Means is easy enough. Paget was without doubt the man who wrote the will, and it was, after all, his job, being the King's secretary and all. Just to confirm it, though, he said to Parliament that he was privy to the beginning, proceeding and ending of the same last will. And in a private conversation, he said that He wrote the will himself, or first draft thereof. He was the king's secretary in control of the process of stamping. He and Anthony Denny had unique access to the king and his private household, so he has the means, and actually he has the opportunity, because there was apparently a whole month 
between the council agreeing the terms of the will with Henry and the will being stamped, if you believe it. And finally, motive. Well, we all know what the motive is. Just to restate it, the idea is that Paget and Hartford had stitched up the future and that they had the evangelically-minded Privy Chamber on their side, specifically in the person of Anthony Denny. There's really no documentary evidence of such a thing. It's all interpretation and shards. But then you'd expect that of such a thing. Otherwise, it wouldn't be a conspiracy, would it? But there's the odd suggestion of one piece of evidence. Paget would later write to Hartford when Hartford was in the hot seat, and he would write, Remember what you promised me in the gallery at Westminster before the breath was out of the body of the king that dead is? Remember what you promised me immediately after, devising with me concerning the place which you now occupy. I have to say, it is quite a suggestive quote, but it could just be a political thing. You said you'd give me the job, so give it to me now. It doesn't necessarily require the changing of a will. So, what is Paget supposed to have done? The idea is that Paget changed the will to ensure Hartford could take power. It could be that he changed the composition of the council or that he added the clause which gave the authority to distribute gifts intended by the king but never enacted, or that he tweaked the will to allow Hartford, after the death of the king, to become sole protector. It is quite impossible to be sure about all of this. Physically, the most suggestive things are about this delay in the date of the stamping and the fact that the last lines of the wills are rather squished in. For both, there is a perfectly reasonable explanation, however. This was a rushed process. The will was created between the 26th and 30th of December. And the fact that the date of stamping was recorded as the 27th of January doesn't necessarily mean that this was when the stamp was actually done, just when the clerk noted the stamped will in his records. It's a bit inefficient, but no more than that. The composition of the council is suggestive. There are 16 members and the split is significant, though honestly it's a split that's been debated either way used to be felt, actually, that it was a balanced group designed to maintain a balance between conservative and evangelical. But more recently, it seems agreed that the composition strongly favours the evangelicals and also that it favours the kind of men that Paget and Hartford could hope to control, more of the new men. And there are only two clerics, one of whom was Cranmer. Essentially, it does indeed look as though it had handed control to Hartford. But as far as I'm concerned, there is a better explanation to all this creeping about, though I have to formally announce to you, as I did with Richard III, that I'm poorly adapted to accept conspiracy theories. I am on William of Ockham's side on the dangers of the multiplication of postulates. Even as a teenager, I was poorly suited to the multiplication of postulates. What's that, postules? I don't buy the Paget theory. The evidence is wafer-thin. Also, I'd like to point out that there is a reasonably good evidence that Denny, supposedly the great evangelical champion, argued multiple times with Henry for Gardiner to be included on the Regency Council, so firmly, in fact, that Henry had to beat him off. Henry came back to him more than once. The identification of privy chamber equals evangelical versus privy council equals conservative and aristocratic is quite helpful in the main, but real life is always more complicated. In Gardiner... Denny recognised a force and an intelligence that he felt would balance the council and would make it stronger. For me, it all comes back to Henry VIII. 
I realise that the Henry VIII theory requires us to ascribe intelligence and some level of foresight to Henry, a man we dislike to like, but it seems much simpler to me that Henry just had a plan here. If Henry had one legacy that he was proud of and wedded to above the continuation of his dynasty, it must surely be his church as he saw it. His doctrine as represented in the King's Book, the dignity of English kings as supreme head of the church. As we saw with his papal envoy, this was the rock on which any reconciliation with the Pope founded. In the end, he came to realise absolutely correctly and with complete foresight and certainty that his reformation could not be trusted to the likes of Gardiner and Norfolk. These men would take England back to Rome, sure as eggs is eggs. He had to break them. This is why Gardiner was banished. And this was why Norfolk was to be totaled after a life of service. Only in Cranmer and the Reformers lay safety for Henry's church. It's the same conclusion we all came to with Henry's treatment of Anne Boleyn. In the end, Henry was the prime mover. And after 30 years of court life, I suspect that watching the swirl of court politics and playing God over it all was how Henry got his kicks. I don't suggest that necessarily means he had a big master plan. In fact, I doubt it. And he may well have been genuinely influenced at many times by the politics of faction. But as we saw with the prebendary's plot, Henry knew what was going on and he knew how to intervene when he needed a result. So look, we need to let Henry die and we can talk about the provisions of the will next time. On the 27th of January, Norfolk's Act of Attainder was signed by commission, Rottersley announcing that the king was too poorly to attend in person. Behind the closed doors and the magnificent tapestries of Henry's private chambers, it was clear that death was stalking the corridors, seeking the king, and there was no Bill and Ted to give it a final wedgie. There was one last problem, of the king's making, really. No one dared tell him. Because if you said, hey king, you're going to die, you were by definition envisioning the death of the king, and that was treason. It was the faithful groom of the stool, Denny, who took the risk and did the decent thing. It was he who had the humanity to tell the king that he must prepare to meet his maker and account for himself. Henry began to think and talk about his life, but eventually said, Yet is the mercy of Christ able to pardon me all my sins, though they were greater than they be. Then he asked if he would like any ministrations, and Henry asked for one of his few close servants that he genuinely seemed to love and protect throughout his reign. Thomas Cranmer. And so we come to the last words. Would they be great words of wisdom, advice to later generations, and insight into the principles that had guided the great king? Sadly not. I will first take a little sleep, and then, as I feel myself, I will advise upon the matter. When Cranmer managed to get to the room, Henry had lost the power of speech. So Cranmer simply told the king to give him some sign that he trusted in God, whereupon Henry, Fox tells us, holding him with his hand, did wring his hand in his as hard as he could. In the end, then, a further form of traditional worship had gone by the wayside. There were no last rites, no extreme unction, just an evangelical statement of faith in that final grip. Shortly afterwards, in the early hours of Friday, the 28th of January, 1547, Henry took leave of his friend at his side and of the world and the king was dead. Long live the king. Well, there we go. I feel all emotional. We started on Henry as a vital young man full of hope about 14 months ago, and now look at me. 
What shall we do then? We need to see Henry VIII off properly, I think. We can't just let him die like that. So, this is what we're going to do, if you would like to take part, that is to say. I'm going to take four real live quotes from real live proper historians. Well, actually, some of them are dead, but you know what I mean. And you are going to choose which one you think matches closest to your view of Henry VIII. You will at least do that if you want to take part. I'm going to help you along by doing what I did for Richard III. I'm going to do one angry denunciation of Henry VIII and all who sailed in him, furious with the man. And I'm going to do one passionately extolling this great man of destiny. And then you can choose. There will be prizes donated by Simon Hall at Hall's Hammered Coins. Thank you, Simon, once more. Brilliant. Thank you. Plus, members will be able to enter two competitions and the members version will include a no-holds-barred jumbo quiz. And points, ladies and gentlemen, points will mean prizes. Now, I can feel waves of excitement coming at me, but hold your horses, there will be something of a delay, but for good reason. Next week, we have a special all-expenses-paid episode on Henry's foreign policy from the super-famous Zach Twamley of the When Diplomacy Fails podcast. Then, the week after that, we have the second of my collaborations with the Roman Bath Museum, which is all about worship and the Roman world. So, Our competition and poll will start on the 15th of July for two weeks. It will be a humdinger, let me tell you. For the moment, let us allow Henry to lie peacefully until next week when Zach will give you the When the Diplomacy Fails view of the big man abroad. Until then, everyone, thank you so much for listening, for your comments on iTunes, Facebook, the website and all that. Give the things that made England a shot as well. Good luck, everyone, and have fun with Zach next week. (laughs) 